0: Okay, let us look now. We are in Exodus chapter 6, and we are looking at a genealogy, family history. This is everyone's favorite part of Scripture, I think. I heard laughter. What is this? Genealogies and family history. Just as you think of that broadly, some of you, you just got really excited. Well, maybe two of you did. The rest of us, maybe you were about to fall asleep. Some of us, as we go through those portions of Scripture, I think we were tempted to fall asleep. That is, history, because that's what we're dealing with in the main part this morning. History can seem so boring because it's old news. It's something that's already happened. We don't then see its relevance for today. Maybe some of you are jaded towards family history in particular because you've been bored out of your mind hearing about it from other people. I don't know about you, but as a child, I can remember more than one time being taken to an older person's home, and it wasn't one related to me, it was like a friend of the family, and they love their family, and so they they want you to love their family and show you pictures and pictures and tell you stories and stories about forgotten relatives of their family history. They pull down the old box, they, you know, blow off the dust, and they show you all of these people you've never seen before and you don't remember. Uh, You were, as a child, bored to tears, or at least I was but you're trying to be a good boy and smile. Nevertheless, even though it might seem boring, it might seem irrelevant, history is vital. If we're going to understand who we are and where we're going, not really where we're come from, but where we're headed because of who God is. And that's most true when we think about our our spiritual family, our in that way spiritual history, because that's what we're diving into today as we consider this genealogy. This is just a list of names, maybe that apparently are hard to pronounce, right? They're quite unfamiliar, and maybe in that way it seems boring. It doesn't grip you. And truth be told, have you ever skipped through a genealogy in your annual Bible reading plan? You're like, okay, yeah, names, 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 names. Where are we now as you're flipping through repeated pages of First Chronicles? But God, apparently, must think this kind of family history is really and really important. Even the very list of names of so-and-so begat so-and-so, because He puts a lot of those lists in the Bible. And we come to one this morning, and it's going to capture our attention. And why does God do that? What's so important about these lists of names? There are actually many reasons, but we're going to consider one, and that's why it's inserted right in this text in Exodus. It's to be a reassurance and encouragement to the people of God. We're going to run into a servant of God who is very discouraged. He's very at a loss at about his own abilities. He doesn't know what God is doing, and insert it into the text as a reminder to the readers and to us now, of course, at reading it, God has a plan for this. You may look at yourself and think, there's nothing good going on here, but God has a plan, He's giving reassurance, and He gives it even through a list of names and in a genealogy. And that's what we're going to cover over the next two weeks, Lord willing here, as we consider this text, Exodus 6, 10 through 7, 7. We're going to cover the first half this week, which is all about the genealogy. But over the next couple weeks, we're going to be considering this. You have this discouraged servant. He doesn't want to do what God's called him to do. He doesn't think he's adequate for it. Well, how is God going to encourage him and all those in like mind to walk faithfully, to trust Him? How can we know that we would be fit for service how can we know that God would ever be able to use us? What well, stems from two things that'll summarize where we're gonna be at this couple of weeks. Fitness for service to the Lord comes from two realizations. It comes from two things. First, that realization that you are not fit for service to God apart from Christ. That really you have no business representing God or speaking to Him unless you are in Christ. But then, furthermore, if you are then in Christ, comes this reassurance. No matter how unfit you might think you are, God has all kinds of plans to use you for His name and for His glory. And we'll see that, first of all, even as we go through this list of names here in the book of Exodus, because what we're going to see is we're going to review God's grace found among His promised people. Above all, what's the first reassurance that we can have that God would ever use us? It's that God is a God of grace. God's people have needed His grace. They've needed His help, and He's given it, and He's, through that, used them for His namesake. Well, before we set that all forth, how we can see that, we need to reset the context. for It was a couple weeks since we were in Exodus. So where are we? Well, in Exodus 6, we find this servant of God who's in desperate need of reassurances. He's really at his wit's end. He's on the brink really of despair of how he could ever be used of God. Now, where are we? So we're in the book of Exodus. What this means is that this is God's people are being enslaved and abused by the Egyptians, of course, led by Pharaoh, who's this acting king of Egypt. More like the God of Egypt, he sees himself. And because of this, God's people have been suffering in slavery. They've called out to God, God, will you help us? And so God has heard their prayer, we've read, and in his mercy, he's coming down. He's ready to move and to deliver. And God has selected one man who's going to be that messenger. He's going to go tell God's message and lead people out of Israel. And of course, that's Moses. But as that mission's come to Moses, what has Moses done? He's equivocated. He's made excuses. God, I think this is a really bad idea. I'm not the right guy for this. We got to the point, just send somebody else, he told God. Well, God won't accept Moses' excuses. And so he provides Moses' brother to be the mouthpiece, but Moses, you're not getting out of this. I'm going to use you. And Moses at first is like, okay, I'll go. And he goes and talks to God's people. And do you remember how God's people responded at first, at the end of Exodus chapter 4? To Moses' shock, they believed, and he was pumped. He and his brother were like, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. And so in great boldness, we saw this beginning in chapter 5, they go before Pharaoh, the great king of really all the Mediterranean world. Oh, God's got a plan for you, Pharaoh. Let his people go. And Pharaoh was like, eh. who's the Lord? I don't know this God. I'm not going to let his people go. And actually, you guys are, don't have enough to do. So, he increases their slavery, makes it all the more difficult and harsh. And from that, the people, they believed, now really discouraged, they go and complain against Moses. Moses goes and complains back against God. Remember this, the end of chapter 5, verse 22, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? and God what does he do? But Moses I made promises. I'm going to keep them. Even this is part of my plan and my promise. And so Moses is like, okay, okay, you're right. You got great promises. Let me go give those back to God's people. And from 2 weeks ago, that's where we ended. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. He's got these great promises. God's coming to deliver. Moses gives those promises back again to the people of God and Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. He gives them the best news in the world, but they can't even hear it. They're too hurt. They're too broken. They felt like they'd been burned by God and now they're too weak of faith, they, they just can't even dare to try and hope again, to try and believe that it's going to be okay, God's going to do something, He's going to keep His Word. And maybe that's where you're at this morning, where you're at in your faith. You've heard these promises, you hear that being a Christian is a good thing, you hear that committing yourself, following after Christ is... God's best for you, and yet you're looking at your life, you're trying to figure out what's going on, and it just is, it's failing again and again. You're trying, but it's going bad. You've been burned, and you're ready to just throw in the towel. Well, before you do, take some courage here, because you're not the first one to struggle like this. That's kind of what the story of Exodus here. God wants to show you His grace and how it's worked and will work among His promised people. But first, let's turn back to Moses because we see this summary of, again, his own objection, his own discouragement. We find this discouraged objection coming from Moses in verses 10 to 13. So, again, Moses, too, is riding this roller coaster of faithfulness and faithlessness in his life. He wasn't, wasn't so excited, gets the message, finally goes gets excited, gets really discouraged because Pharaoh won't believe, and then he gets encouraged again by the promises of God. He goes back to the people, but the people again, they won't believe. So here he is, despondent. I told you, God, this was a bad idea. Look at verse 10 of Exodus 6. Because despite how discouraged you are, Moses, I'm not changing my plans. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So just moments ago, he had gone to the people of Israel, you know, the people that should be prone to believe God's word, and they couldn't hear it because they were so discouraged. And now, God, you're telling me I need to go to Pharaoh who opposes you and your people? You think I have any chance of persuading him? God, this is not a good idea. I told you this from the beginning. Look at verse 12 then. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. God, your own people won't give me the time of day. What do you think Pharaoh's going to think? Is he going to give a rip about what I say? I don't think so. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? And then here's his excuse, the capstone of his excuse, for I am of uncircumcised lips. That's Moses' excuse now. I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, I've been pondering this last week. What in the world does that mean? Because I didn't know or care to know that lips could or could not be circumcised, frankly. Clearly, we're dealing with some kind of idiom. This is some kind of metaphorical expression. And so, to clarify that, some of your translations have made various attempts, like, I am unskilled in speech, Moses says, or he said something like, I am such a poor speaker, or since I speak with faltering lips, how could we think Pharaoh would ever believe in me? But with that said, I think this rendering best captures the sense. I have unclean lips, and I think that's best. Because all of the other attempts seem to imply that there's some kind of physical problem, some kind of physical impediment to Moses' speech. Lack of skill, some inability, some lack of training. I'm a poor speaker. But with this expression of uncircumcised lips... The issue really isn't physical. It's more of a spiritual issue for Moses. He's got a spiritual problem. That's why he thinks he cannot step forward. To highlight that point or to prove it, think about in the Bible, where else do we find uncircumcised applied in a non-literal way? Most of all, it's usually an uncircumcised heart. What does an uncircumcised heart tell you? It's a heart that's hard to God. It's a heart that doesn't receive the Word and teaching of God. It's a heart that will not obey God, does not love God. An uncircumcised heart is one that's in need of a purifying work in the heart. And I think this is where Moses' lips are right now. This is why he sees his lips so lacking. They are impure. They're unclean. They're not up for the spiritual task of setting forth to speak God's Word. He's not ready for this. And you think about it. What has he found so far? He hasn't been very fruitful in ministry. God's people don't believe in him. And there's no way mighty Pharaoh is going to believe I'm not qualified for this, God. But again, God's not about to shift or make a plan B. He's going forward with Moses. Hence that, here Moses makes an objection, and here's the Lord's response in verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I didn't make a mistake, Moses. I called you, I'm going to use you, you're going to be my mouthpiece, despite all of your objections, despite how discouraged you are about this. And then we have a genealogy. We have this reassuring family tree from verses 14 to 27. That'll be the focus of our study the rest of this morning. But notice at the end of the genealogy what we read. Look at verse 28. So you have the genealogy. It's a genealogy for Moses and Aaron, by the way. They come from the tribe of Levi. And then we pick up in verse 28 of chapter 6, and we read this. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I shall say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? That sound familiar? It's just repeating what was already said before. It had already happened before. This isn't a second event of this. He's summarizing. So, as Moses says, I have uncircumcised lips, I'm not fit for this, I'm so discouraged, oh God, insert genealogy, and then we hear the objection once more. The point is, right in the middle of this uncircumcised lip sandwich, as odd as that sounds, you have this genealogy in the middle. And what is the genealogy proving? It's proving God has a plan and it rests on His grace. You may think you're not fit for this, but I have a plan and you can rest on my grace. I will make you fit for this. And really, as we go through verse 7 of the next chapter, chapter 7, he gives another reassurance, too, about you may think you have uncircumcised lips. You may think you're not fit for this but I have a plan, and I have my grace, and I have my word. We'll talk about that second half, Lord willing, next week. But first, we're going to focus our eyes on that first reassurance. You might think you have uncircumcised lips, that you're not fit for this, but don't forget where you came from. The first reassurance he has, or that he should have, is he remembers his pedigree. He remembers where God has brought him, where he came from. And I submit to you by the end, the point isn't so much that he came from a certain people or a certain tribe, as much as it is it's a people formed by the promise of God. Because here's the point. Moses' lips really are not unclean. They're not uncircumcised. They're not unfit for this service. Why? Because God said so. This is why. Because God made promises. This is why. Because God chose Moses. This is why. But to prove that point, he's going to insert this genealogical record to give great encouragement to Moses, or at least to those that read this afterward, who might be discouraged just like Moses is. Because I know what you're thinking. When you're really spiritually discouraged, and you really want a, you know, a spiritual high and pick-me-up, the first place you go, the genealogies in the Bible. I mean, that's why when you go in the Christian bookstores and you get those coffee mugs and it says, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so all around the cup, you're like, oh yeah, God, you're doing something. And yet I submit to you, though we so often glance through these scriptures, there's great spiritual strength to be had if we'll just slow down and think a minute and consider this list of names, who they are. Namely, for two reasons. What's so encouraging about this list of names? Number one is that they are the promised people of God. What forms this people? Why is there a list of people here? Because God made promises. That's why. And despite all of the obstacles against them, despite all the troubles from without and from within, (laughs) we'll see that quite evidently with these people, from without, right now, the oppression of slavery, despite all the obstacles against them, God's promise is sure. His grace still stands. His plan and promise will not be moved away from. They are a people formed and made and preserved by the promise of God. And that's really important because, second, what's so important about this genealogy is that you see? This family is not made up of perfect people at all. Actually, their very presence here in Israel, but that God would use this people just shows what kind of God is He. He's a God of mercy. This is what it shows. This is what the genealogy will teach us this morning. That's what Moses needed to see and remember most of all. That's what's evidence from this family tree. God is a God of grace. He's still at work because He made a promises made promises, even though we are a mixed and troubled people ourselves. Because we've seen this as we've gone through these early chapters in in Exodus. It's not about you, Moses. This is kind of the point, isn't it? It's about God, and it's about what is God doing through you. It's about what has God promised. Your lips are fine. I chose them. I made them. I can use them. Trust me. Believe my promise. So, let us see each of those in turn. Let's see how God's steady promise keeps and holds this family. Now, the family we're dealing with in particular is the tribe of Levi. Levi was the third son of Jacob. And we see that fallout as this genealogy begins in verse 14. You see that he's the third son because the first two sons of Jacob are listed there. We read in verse 14, These are the heads of their fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok and Palu, and Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. And then verse 15, you have the sons of Simeon. That's the second son of Jacob. You have Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shual, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. Okay, those are the first two sons, Reuben and Simeon. Then we come to son number three. These are the names of the sons of Levi. And we hear about them all the way down through, really, the end of this whole genealogy, such that, look at the second half of verse 25, it reads, "...these are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans, and these are the Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord had said," so and so forth, that is," We saw Reuben's genealogy, very summary. We saw then Simeon's genealogy, very summary. Then we talk about the Levites. We're going to talk about them for a long time. Why? Because Moses and Aaron come from the tribe of Levi. That's why this is interjected right where it is. But that brings us to an interesting question, because from this point on, we don't get the fourth genealogy that is of the fourth son of Jacob, Judah, or any of the others that follow. Why? Why do we hear the first two about Reuben and Simeon very summary and then we look at Leviticus or the Levites in particular. Why does he do this? Why well, submit to you? It's to show you God's plan that he has a promised plan and it rests on grace. To see that, we have to go back actually to the book of Genesis. And I want you to look at Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. So in your Bible it's not that all that far, just flip backwards a few pages and he should be there. And as we turn to Genesis 49, we have the patriarch Jacob. He's about to pronounce God's blessing upon each of his 12 sons. Now, you have to back up and think about the whole story of Genesis, okay? It began, everything was good, Adam sinned, everything got very bad. We thought with Noah, things were getting a little bit better or around that time, but God flooded the earth because there was such evil, and then God was doing a new work, it seemed like, through Noah, but then Noah was a sinner too, and it goes on. You know how this story goes. Eventually, the whole world's corrupt, but he's plucking one family in particular, Abraham's family. And he makes this great promise to Abraham. And he says, In you and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God's going to bless the world through Abraham and his family. However, as you go through the story of Genesis, Abraham doesn't have much of a family until he's very old. And then he finally has a promise on Isaac. And Abraham passed his blessings on to Isaac. And then Isaac had twins, but there was a chosen son, Jacob. And Isaac passes his blessings on to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And here we are then at Genesis 49 and he's passing that blessing that he got from Isaac, who got it from Abraham, who got it from God. He's passing that down to his 12 sons and you would expect the one to get the choice blessing from Jacob would be the firstborn, Reuben. Yet he's not the one of preeminence. Why not? Well, let's read. Jacob tells us in this, quote, blessing in Genesis 49. So, look at this. Verse 1 of chapter 49, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, boys, and I will tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Verse 2, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Another name for Jacob. So here we are. The first one comes to the firstborn, Reuben. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Why? Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. If you recall, Reuben, the oldest son, had gone and slept with Jacob's concubine, and that was a disgrace to his father's bed, such that then the Place of preeminence and favor, it passes over Reuben, the oldest, and it's going to go on down the line. However, it's going to go past Reuben because he disgraced him, so it should go to son number two, which is Simeon, except Simeon has also disgraced his father. So it's going to go to Levi, the third son. However, we see he doesn't get it either. Why? Well, let's look at verse 5 of Genesis 49. Look at the quote blessing Jacob pronounces over Simeon and Levi together. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. That's not a blessing you want to hear, is it? (laughs) That says it's a curse and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, do you remember what events Jacob's alluding to here? In Genesis 34, the prince of Shechem had raped Dinah, Simeon, and Levi's sister. And in retaliation, they ended up tricking the Shechemites saying, hey, if you guys get circumcised, we'll all intermarry and be one big happy family. But that was a trap, such that when the men were all sore from their circumcision, Simeon and Levi took up swords, the two of them, and rose up and murdered all the Shechemite men in this town as some kind of retaliation for violating their sister. So, although her injury, the sister's, was deplorable, unjust, totally wrong, worthy of punishment, Simeon and Levi's revenge was severe and Jacob didn't forget it. Such that, not only did the place of preeminence and blessing, it didn't just pass over the firstborn Reuben, it passed over also Simeon and Levi too. Such that, as you go then and read in Genesis 49, it settles on Judah, the fourthborn son. We see that in Genesis 49 verse 8, "'Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies.'" It goes on and says in verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. From Judah is going to come the great king. He's going to be the one that's going to have preeminence overall. And of course, eventually that's King David. But eventually after that, our Lord Jesus descends from Judah's line, but not Levite's. Not from the Levite line. Levites were passed over. Why? Because of their savagery, their evil. With that in mind, go back to Exodus chapter 6. Because you might expect if Moses' goal here was to merely trace back for us his family line, he could have just gone right to Levi said, I'm of the tribe of Levi, and here's my lineage and the lineage of my brother Aaron. But he doesn't do that. He bothers to mention the two older brothers. Why? We'll get to that in a moment. Think about Moses again. Remember what he said when God said, you need to go speak my word to Pharaoh? He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I'm not fit for this. You wonder if he's thinking through the whole events of the blessings from Genesis 49. We've been passed over. We're not of the tribe of Judah. We're not your chosen people for this. I'm not fit for this. And yet, what does this genealogy show us? What is the very presence of Moses being directed by God for this? Even though he's from the Levite tribe, what does it show us? This is about God's gracious choice, Moses. This isn't you thinking about what you've earned from your past or what your ancestors earned for you. This isn't about you being equipped or so special. This is about me saying, this is your mission. This is about my word saying, here's what you should do. And I intend to use you. This is not about you, really. This is about God's promise, His plan. What is God doing, not what you might think you can or cannot do? In a way, do you recall those words that God spoke to Peter when he was first to go preach the gospel to a non-Jewish person? You know, the Jews couldn't interact with non-Jews. So God had this whole vision that came a couple times to Peter, and it was, punctuated by this declaration. This is Acts 10, 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. Do not call unfit for ministry. You think your lips are unclean? You think you're unuseful to me, Moses? You think of that because your family was passed over from being the kingly line? Well, listen, all be the judge whether you're unclean or not. Really, he's the one who gets to say whether you're clean or not and whether you are the one that can represent him. It's not your past. It's not your own failures. It's not your previous failed attempts to save. It's not the failures of your ancestors or whatever has gone before. That has no bearing if he has chosen you. Why? Because it's about his promise. And his promise isn't on you because of who you are, of yourself. His promise makes you who you are in Christ. It's about His promise. It's about what His Word has said, who you are. That's why it's so important to find our identity, who we are by the gospel and what God's Word has said, such that for all of us in Christ, here's what God's Word has said about you. 1 Peter two nine. but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why does he call us these things? That you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is this about? God is about calling failures and sinners to himself, showing them mercy, and then he commissions them into ministry because what do we bring with our message about how holy we were, about how great our family line was? No, what's our message? God is merciful. He would even call a sinner like me. That's the excellencies we declare to the nations. He saved you for this purpose. He's promised it to you in Christ. He's calling you and equipping you to declare those excellencies out to the world By what you say and how you live. And we want to go, but I, but I, but I, but I. And he's saying, no, but Christ. His promised word tells you what you are. So walk in that assurance. His word among his people, that sets your identity. And as we return then to this genealogy Here in Exodus 6, that's so crucial because as you look back of this, even this tribe, the promised family of Levite, at best, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag of faith and faithlessness. And yet the family still marches on. Why? Because God's plan and His grace marches on too. So just to highlight some examples of the good and bad, we just begin with the whole tribe of Levi itself. In the first place, the tribe of Levi gets called to serve God because of their zeal for God. So we'll see this, Lord willing, in like a number of years. But eventually, we'll get to Exodus 32. And there, what happens? That's the incident of the golden calf. God gave the law. Don't make idols. And what did God's people do immediately? They made a big idol and worshiped it. Problem. God's wrath was against His people and they were spared some of it by the Levites. Moses called out to the body of Israel and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come gather to me. Well, who came? The tribe of Levite came. They came and stood with God in zealous faithfulness unto Him. And for this, they were then awarded and made priests and ministers to God. So that's on the good side of it. But we go to Moses' brother Aaron, and we hear about Aaron's sons, Aaron's sons are going to be the high priests, the representatives of the people of Israel before God. But the list begins with Nadab and Abihu. We see that in verse 23 of Exodus 6. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him, Nadab and Abihu, and Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu, you remember those names? They were the first real high priest after their father Aaron, or were to be. And yet, in Leviticus chapter 10, they did not honor the Lord. They offered a strange, unauthorized sacrifice. Which, what does that mean? They disregarded God's law. They disregarded His holiness. They disregarded His word. And what happened? They were killed on the spot. That's a mixed bag. You got the Levites, look pretty good. Then you got Aaron's sons, not so good. Or go back to Aaron himself. He's going to be the mouthpiece for Moses at first, speaking the word of God to to Pharaoh and to the people. And yet, what about Aaron? Thinking back to the golden calf incident, who's the guy that made the golden calf? Aaron. Yeah, the guy in this lineage and line. Or what about in verse 21? We hear about the sons of Izhar. And first we read, there was this son named Korah. Does that sound familiar? Those of you familiar with the Old Testament? He led a whole rebellion against Moses and the leadership of God of his people. And what happened to Korah? The ground split open and swallowed him. Now, this is not a, you know, a chronicling of the highlights of faith of the Old Testament as it looks through this family tree. It's mixed. It's like yours, probably. Some good guys, a lot of bad guys. And then you have actually kind of a good guy at the end. Verse 25, we have the last guy mentioned here. She bore him Phineas. Phineas, out of his great zeal for God, protects the people from further judgment in Numbers 25. It's a mixed bag. But what's the point? Why is this here? Why are we seeing such a mix of good and bad in this family? How is that any encouragement? Well, here it is. God is not done with the Levites. They should have been passed over, it seems like, that have no significance whatsoever. And yet, God is going to make them the priests for His people, and Moses and Aaron come from them who lead His people out of Egypt. And is that because their descendants, too, themselves are so holy and so good and so perfect? Evidently, quite no. Why? Because what is this about? God's promise. What is this about? God is faithful. What is this about? God shows His grace. His promise, He will not waver from it. He will send His blessing to all the families of the earth, even through this promised people. Such that, after laying out all of this Levite ancestry, we come to verses 26 and 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord had said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt and their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. This is them. They're from a spotted past, a spotted family, but one founded by the promise and grace of God. So Moses, Christian, do you feel so inadequate for what he has called you to do? so unable to do this job, such a failure. But what does this family line show you? But God makes promises. He doesn't swerve them from them. He keeps them. How can He do that? Because He's a God of grace. That's how. This isn't about getting yourself anything enough, equipped enough, worthy enough, able enough. That's not a gift. That's not grace. It's not even about being born in the right physical family. It's about are you tied to the people of promise? Will you trust that God is a gracious God through his promises? This is the point of this genealogy. Moses wasn't chosen by God because he was from the most upright family. He wasn't tapped by God for this task, even because his brothers and sisters or himself were such, you know, heaven's little angels. No. Why was Moses chosen to lead God's people and to speak God's word? Why? Because God chose him. Why? Because God sent so. Why? Because God is gracious. Why? Because God magnifies His grace, His plan, His power, His promised word by choosing the unworthy. And when you start to see yourself aright that way, then you're finally ready and fit to serve Him. So why are you so discouraged? Have you sidelined yourself from life and ministry in the church because you think you're not worthy, you're not trained up enough, you've messed up too much, you have unclean lips, you have no idea how to share the gospel with that neighbor, you're, you're wholly inadequate to teach God's Word, you have, you have no sense of how you can even be a spiritual encouragement to anybody. But here it is. Has God not chosen you in Christ? Has He not given you His Spirit? Has He not equipped you and called you to equip the saints for the work of ministry? He has. Didn't He make a promise? Doesn't He have more grace to keep it? That's the way that you can see you're ready. And that's really the story of Moses here as we come to these opening chapters. It's so well summarized by D.L. Moody when he said this, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, you know, as a prince in Egypt. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of a desert realizing he was nobody, nobody. And finally he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do through a nobody. And here it is. I have unclean lips. I'm a nobody. And God gives him his word and says, "Now you're ready to go." But to speak to it more sharply now, I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2 just for a moment to look at verses 14 through 17. Cuz I want to speak to it a moment. I mean, we we've been dealing with Moses and Aaron's uh, lineage, and you might be going, you know, that's great, Rick. I'm glad he's got this, you know, preserved family line in the Bible and everything, but that's not my family. You know, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Levite, let alone. I'm not of the tribe of Judah either of myself, and I'm certainly not even of Abraham at all. What does any of this have to do with me? Does it have anything to do with me? Do I have any tie to this family? And my answer is, well, yes and no. But you see, God's people are a family, not made now by physical birth. We are a family made by faith, trust in the promise of God and His Son. You cannot put it more succinctly than the Apostle John does in the opening of his gospel when he says, John 1.12, But to all, Jew or Gentile, who did receive the Son, who believed in His name, what happens? He gave the right to become the children of God in His family. So for those of you that have faith in Christ, you're in God's family of the tribe or the line of Jesus. And that's crucial as we look to our big brother mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 2. Cuz you see rightly said he adopts you into God's family, but in a way he got adopted into ours as he took on our flesh. Look at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children Share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, partook of those same things, flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil. And what else to do? To deliver all those who through fear of death were made subject to lifelong slavery. He came as a man, taking on flesh and blood to die in your place. He took on your family name with it all of its problems and all of its sins to represent you, to be counted with you, to join your family so then He can rescue you and deliver you eternally. Get this. God came down from heaven to join your human family, to be like you in every way. Why? So He can save you in every way. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, representative in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Such that in Christ, you can look back on your family tree. You can't maybe go to the tribe of Levi or the tribe of Judah or any of those, but you can go to Jesus and you can see this big brother, the risen Jesus Christ, the faithful high priest. Because the thing is about this faithful high priest, this name in your spiritual genealogy, he's not dead. He's alive right now. As the book of Hebrews adds this support, verse 18. For because he himself suffered when tempted, and he could only do that as he took on flesh and blood and walked in this world with us, but then because now he is able to help those who are being tempted, able right now. Because He's alive right now. He's not just some name in a book and a family lineage. He is your living big brother and mediator to God. To do what? To strengthen you for the battle, to equip you and qualify you to whoever He's called you to be obedient. But this comes not as we look to ourselves, not as we look to our accomplishments or trainings or advantages, certainly doesn't come as we look to our failings, our shortcomings, and just our sheer inadequacies. We want to say that it's not I, I, I. Instead, we look to Jesus, our adopted brother and Savior. And that's the call in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus! the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now at the Father's right hand interceding for you, His little brothers and sisters. To hold you fast all the way to the end. He came for that, to come through on that, to come through on His promise. We are His people, called by Him to salvation. May we ever tether our eyes to Him. Let's do that as we pray. That's pretty good.